0: To do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. One of my favorite people to read at times is uh, the author Meredith Klein. He is one of the ones that I will either find very inspirational or very objectionable. and there's no real middle ground with Meredith Klein. He's a, a, either absolutely brilliant or he I think he's absolutely not. And so, in his commentary on Zechariah, he is profoundly brilliant uh, when he writes this, strange detergent staining blood, but such is the forensic chemistry of the justification of God's chosen priesthood. Jesus, Lamb of God, must pour out his blood in the baptism judgment of his crucifixion that there might be a baptismal laver filled with blood, a fountain opened where sinners lose all their guilty stains. Klein artfully demonstrates in this quote the irony of God's chosen element for cleansing his people. The detergent, the soap, if you will, that he he chooses by which to clean his people's heart is blood. Of all the humors, few are seen as staining as blood. In God's economy, the detergent he ordains for the cleansing of his people, shows the hideous defilement of sin and the cost of its removal. If blood alone is that which is able to remove sin, how staining then must sin be? And one of the Old Testament texts that reminds us of the truth of what uh, Klein says here is the prophecy in Isaiah. In coming to Isaiah, we have made another chronological leap he prophesies in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reigns of Uzziah through Hezekiah. And this introductory passage in chapter 1 probably takes place in the reign of Uzziah uh, some 50 to 60 years after the cleansing of Naaman. Uzziah probably is the king because in chapter 6 you will read it begins with, in the year that King Uzziah died. And so it seems likely that chapter 1 is in the reign of the first king mentioned in which Isaiah prophesied. The Bible tells us the character of this king in 2nd Chronicles 26, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding and the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. At this point, when Uzziah is the king of the southern kingdom, Jeroboam II is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And there is a small restoration going on in that part of God's people. It was though not for the sake of the king, but God's own grace. In 2 Kings 14 we read, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For for there was not any shut up, nor left, nor any helper in Israel." And the Lord God and the Lord said, "Not that He would blot out His name of Israel under heaven, but He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash." The Lord sees the plight of those in the southern and the northern kingdom, and He says, "I, because of My grace and My compassion, will not blot them out yet from under heaven." And so they are experiencing a bit of a renaissance in the reign of Jeroboam the second. This. The reign of Jeroboam II also is notable because it is in this reign that Jonah is making his way to Nineveh. And yet this prophecy of Isaiah declaims the sin of Israel, and it does so in quite graphic and disturbing terms. While this ordinarily would refer us only to the northern kingdom, the union of the southern kings with the north suggests a dual meeting. For Ahab has infected the south. Ahab, you remember, is probably the most wicked king ever recorded in the pages of the Old Testament. And one of his daughters was Uzziah's grandfather's stepmother, one who ruled for six years while while Uzziah's grandfather grew up in the temple. Uzziah may represent a faithful king, but he has his own problems, for he will end his reign as a leper due to his sin of pride. And so Isaiah in his talking in his discussion here is speaking to all God's people. He warns of the need of cleansing, the only remedy being God's providence. As we consider this passage, we see the removal of several elements. We see Israel speaking of taking out Sodom, taking scarlet out and taking substance out taking Sodom out, taking scarlet out, and taking substance out. Now, you might have noted that in this passage, there is no sense of Sodom at all. And yet, it is in the background. If you look at verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, and give ear unto the law of God, ye people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned here. And it's kind of odd because if you look at the previous verse, except the Lord of Hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah. And then is, uh, Isaiah addresses the Lord addresses through Isaiah the rulers of the northern kingdom in terms of the most wicked of cities in the Old Testament. Here they represent the these repugnant ideas. They represent the Isaiah the Lord through Isaiah speaks up to them as to those who desperately need cleansing. And so here he speaks of the removal of their defilement, both by subtraction and by addition. First, the people need to stop doing something. In verse 16, wash you, make, your, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. The Lord warns the people, that their attempts of covering their sin will not work. In verse 11, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or of he goats. Everything that the people have tried in terms of sacrifice will not eliminate their sin. The Lord said he is full up of all of these things. He is fed up with all of their offerings and sacrifices. He calls them empty. Verse 13, Bring no more vain oblations, incenses an abomination to me, new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn eating. The people have basically profaned every bit of what they have been doing. All of their worship no, mean, is, is nothing. It doesn't work because they lack something critical in their religious practice. They lack holiness. They lack repentance. In short, what the people are doing is that they are treating the worship of Yahweh, the worship of the one true God, like every other idol. They have been trained in the way that they respond to their God like all of the rest of the nations. They assume that all that the Lord wants is what all of his rivals want, and that is food, the food of the sacrifice. They do not recognize that the God, the God of Israel is different, that he looks upon the heart. And thus the Lord commands his people to metaphorically repent not with another empty sacrifice, but with all the heart, that what the people need is not another sacrifice to sort of placate God, but to be washed, to put away the evil. And he adds the divine vision of the people. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. The Lord says what you are doing in your evil and wickedness is not done in secret, it is done publicly, it is done in my presence. It is done with me washing. He sees their deeds, he sees their heart, he sees their evil. What they do, they do before the very presence of the Lord. And so the essence of their washing appears in the final clause, stop doing evil. The Lord adds something to what the people ought to not only stop doing, but what they ought to start doing. Verse 17, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. In the center of this perhaps chiastic expression, we see the essence of repentance, stop doing evil, learn doing good. In a chiastic expression, usually it is the very center of uh, that expression that is the most important. And here, as you read through, uh, the center of these two verses is there in the scene between verse 16 and 17, stop doing evil, learn to do good. And repentance requires both sides, that we are to turn away from sin and that we are to turn to God. For the definition of doing good appears in the rest of the verse. It reminds us of the frightening image that immediately precedes the command to wash. In verse 15, and when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. This is the background against which we ought to read what uh, may seem to some people to be a mark of 20th and 21st century social justice gospel. But that is not to the commandment here. He is talking to a people whose hands are blood from the plunder of the widow and the orphan that they have unjustly condemned. Purity puts on justice and compassion. Of all the plights of sinful men, the ones that deserve the compassion of God's people, the orphan and the widow take top place. These are members of these groups, ordinarily their members don't choose to join such company. You ordinarily don't make yourself a widow or an orphan. Both of these groups suffer the consequences of death. They are put in that, that state because someone dear to them has died. They are in a weakened state, and to plunder them in their weakened state ought to offend our compassion for all who suffer the effects of sin. Again, I have no intention of advocating the viewpoint of so-called uh, Christian justice, which has blown out of proportion in many parts of the evangelical church. For the Orthodox Church rightly condemns much of that doctrine as false. And yet in our determined avoidance of theological liberalism, have we hardened our heart against the suffering of others? Yes, we have turned away from doing evil, but we have we turned outward to care for others. We may rush to help those within the house of God, but do we feel how do we feel toward the suffering of unbelievers? Do we see the suffering of those bearing God's image and feel compassion? And even despite the fact that we may not be able to do anything to help, we might assume then that we ought to harden our hearts. Because it feels really bad when we recognize that there is nothing we can do to help someone who is broken. The awful truth is that compassion often hurts. For we often have nothing to offer the sufferer other than Christ. We can't fix their problem. We often feel helpless and that wounds our soul. And so we assume that it is better for us to close our hearts than to feel the pain. But the absolutely the reverse is the truth as one who now is an, attempting to open his calcified heart, I'm not speaking with any sense of authority or superiority, but with a sense of shame and weak amends. The hard-heartedness that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah is often all too present in our own hearts, and it must be taken out. We are those who need to learn to cease from doing evil, but also to learn to do what is good. We need to take Sodom out, but secondly, we need to take the scarlet out. When I say we, it's God who must do the work. Isaiah moves on to describe the removal of the stain of sin. He speaks in this verse 18, both of the standing, uh, staining work of sin and the cleaning work of God. Isaiah uses some irony that we might wonder about in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah begins by the word of the Lord to say, Come now, the Lord says this. Gather together, let us dialogue. And in this dialogue, it, it will be the Lord who does the majority of the talking although we are brought forward to confess that which he, by his work, must remove from us. We come confessing our sin, the fact that we indeed have the stain of sin upon our soul that he must remove. Isaiah uses, the Lord through Isaiah uses the color red to indicate the color of sin. And perhaps one of the best ways to understand this is to talk about uh, laundry, that great popular and uh, yeah, enchanting subject that we all uh, love to think about, uh, laundry. And anyone who has had the misfortune to place a single red garment into a load of whites uh, knows the inevitable pink result. Uh, for me I don't have a lot of red and so it's usually a black sock in my whites and the result isn't all that bad, it just turns a kind of a muddy gray. But even with, uh, even with our modern methods of more Mordanting, and yes that is a thing, Uh, Colors in our clothes still run. So imagine being in the 8th century uh, B.C. when uh, things weren't, uh, colors and dyes weren't as stable as they are in our day. Imagine being in a hot, arid climate where uh, sweat is not an uncommon feature. And that sweat runs into your hands and you touch a scarlet cloth and all of a sudden you have blood upon your hands. That is, the image, not just stained, but staining. A staining that is almost impossible to remove, for once your whites turn pink, it is nearly impossible for you to make them white again. This is the metaphor that the Lord chooses to describe the sin of His people. It has stained them so deeply that they cannot return to their original purity, no matter how much they wash. The Lord must clean them himself. In this verse, he uses the passive instead of the active. For he has told them to wash themselves in the sense of repentance, but the people must believe something more will come from the hand of the Lord. Their repentance will be weak It will be flawed. It will not be sufficient to make atonement for their sin. They must believe that the Lord's promise is true, that when they repent, He will act to cleanse the stain of sin. The promise of the Lord encourages them that what they cannot obtain by their own strength, be they never so diligent, He will work in them. Purity requires the strange detergent of the Lord, the red-staining blood of Jesus to wash out the scarlet and the crimson, the bloody sin that leaves the soul white like snow and wool. My friend, this message is for you. Consider the promise of the Lord. See your sin for the soul-staining evil that it is. Understand the justice of God that is necessary against such wrong. He cannot pass over your sin, but must judge it as he did in Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and death. Sin deserves the worst censure of Almighty God, that of eternal hell. Yet God would not condemn all to that fate. Rather, he chose for himself a people, saving them and washing them clean. The detergent necessary would come from himself. Jesus, God-made man, bled for the sins of his people. He lived a sinless life. Never did he come in contact with the crimson or scarlet of sin. Instead, he died not for his sin, but as the only innocent victim to bear the sins of his people. He took the punishment that their sins deserved and he walked out of the tomb alive to prove that he had indeed fully satisfied divine justice and offered the cleansing sacrifice that reconciles his people to God. His resurrection proves that the the detergent of his blood erases every single mark of sin on our soul. He washes us white as snow and wool. By faith, you can be washed? Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you stop doing evil and learn doing good? Christian, as many times as we hear this, we have not grown out of our needing that sin, soul-cleansing detergent. So much of our lives we live looking for at bloody hands. In Derek Thomas's commentary on the book of Isaiah, he can't help himself but go into uh, discussion of Lady Macbeth and in, in in, uh, Shakespeare. But that's how we are. Nothing will be able to remove the stain of blood upon our hands. For we feel the crimson stain on our tolls. We, we are, as Luther would say, symbol justice et, et peccator, at the same time, just and sinner. And this verse calls us to reckon with the Lord, to keep short accounts, to discuss our plight with him, to discuss our sin, to to confess our sin to him, and to repent. And doing so, we do so in faith that we may approach him and wash our hands in the blood of Christ offered for our sin. As Hebrews writes, by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. This one day of atonement promises us forever forgiveness of sins throughout our life. We have the promise of God in his word. In 1 John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see Isaiah speaking of taking Sodom out and taking Scarlet out, and finally, let's See the substance that he talks about. He speaks of the land of necessity and of their obedience and the foundational law of repentance. He discusses the consequences in these last few verses for covenant keepers and for covenant breakers. All Israel lives in covenant with their creator. And thus we find covenant blessings and cursings appearing in the Lord's word to them. Verse 19, if you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Throughout the covenant history of the Old Testament, you see these covenant ratification ceremonies, and probably one of the most dramatic was when Israel was gathered together after the general conquest of the land, as half of the nation stood on Mount Ebal and the other half on Mount Gerizim, and they responded Tiffany the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. For they understood that the covenant had different features for both keepers and breakers. If they listen to the word of the Lord, if they believe his promise of a mighty cleansing for their sins, if they act in accordance with their faith, if they wash in faith, then the blessings of the covenant will fill their days in the land. The land of milk and honey will produce and increase their joy in the presence of the Lord. For the essence of the covenant is the relationship between the Lord and his people. That connection between God and man changes everything. It defines our understanding of who we are and it governs how we live. That is the essence of verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But the hard reality of sin appears in the phenomenon of covenant breakers. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. I wonder if we really grasp, appreciate, or believe what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. For we often imagine that unbelievers simply don't know or understand the truth. We try to excuse their rebellion against their Maker. But Paul tells us that they have no excuse because they indeed know God, even his eternal power and Godhead. So why then does it throw us when those who grow up in the church or those who appear to love the church and know the gospel seem at one time seem to abandon its principles? Why should we assume that it casts doubt upon our faith when it is a part of our doctrine? The Lord, through Isaiah, speaks here of those who know the obligations and the foundation of the covenant and willfully rebel against it. These are people who are in the land, who have experienced the power of God, who know the fullness that comes from being right with Him, and they willfully choose that they will not be His people anymore. They refuse to listen and to believe that which they know to be true. They choose the authority of themselves rather than the authority of the word of the Lord. They choose their definition of happiness rather than the objective reality of created humanity. And yet, despite all this, we believe that God's Spirit still exercises omnipotent saving power. But such rebels face one con- consequence. Here the Lord mentions the sword, that means by which Israel was evicted out of the land. It represents death, the ultimate reward of sin. And such sword rests solely in the hand of the Lord who brings judgment upon, against the covenant breakers. For his word will stand sure and confirmed. Yes, he will use humans as the Assyrians will drive Israel and bring them into captivity. But make no mistake, it is the Lord, the judge of all the earth, who is executing his justice. For purity remembers the obligations of its nature. Christian, we are often covenant breakers. Every sin we commit is an act of refusal of God an act of rebellion against his word. And our sin is spiritually worse than the sin of unbelievers because we sin against our own restoration. That is what I think uh, baffles Paul when he writes in Romans chapter 7 about uh, the two things he finds warring in his own heart. We owe something to the new creation formed in us in Christ and as powerful as the judgment of innocence we bear we hear before the court of God's justice, we also hear the promise of blessing and cursing. And in part the curse functions as a consequence of our turning away from the Lord. For we cannot enjoy the presence the only, of God, the only place of joy when we have turned away from the presence. We cannot experience the joy of the Lord when we have turned our back on the Lord of the joy. And the cold chill that we feel, the darkness that we see, the bitterness that we taste, is all that that, that exists outside of the Lord's presence. The pure, blessed is it that we cannot enjoy any longer the food of the dead. We are made for heavenly meat. We are made with a fullness that only can be blessed in the presence of the Lord. This word is for us. It is for us to remember that there is nothing but the sword outside of the presence of God. But to remember the blessed truth that every good and perfect gift is found in his presence that in the presence of God, there is the good of the land. O beloved, let your heart so long for the true joy that is found in Christ Jesus, that no inducement will turn you from the steadfast gaze upon the face of your Savior. Let's pray together. Forgive our cold, compassionless hearts, O God, who has loved us unconditionally before the world began. Remind us of the blood of Christ, who cleanses us from all sins and removes the stain that otherwise would permanently defile us. Fix our love on you that we may delight in the good of the heavenly land forever. Hear our prayer.